Hello everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Jonathan C. Rutledge. He's currently at Harvard University uh, working on a postdoc, but he also has PhDs in Divinity from the University of St. Andrews and the University of Oklahoma in Divinity and Philosophy. So just going at it, uh, double Dr. Jonathan. Uh, what's up? How are you today? I'm doing great. Um, just glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, just hanging out in Cambridge, doing my thing. Yeah. Super cool. So do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Yeah. So as you just mentioned, I do a little bit of philosophy and a little bit of theology. So um, right now I'm at uh, the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard, which a lot of people I imagine will want to know, like, what what does that really mean? Um, mm -hmm. You study flourishing. That's pretty highfalutin concept stuff. Um yeah, so this program, basically, it's largely, it's inter interdisciplinary, so it's a mix of empirical scientists and then humanities scholars, and really from all over the place. Um, but what we do is we uh, sort of talk back and forth about human flourishing, what it is as a concept, and then various things related to flourishing. Um, and forgiveness is one of those topics that I'm uh, especially like involved with here um, in the program. And then we try to come up with ways to measure it um, and then offer interventions to help people increase their flourishing. So in the positive psychology literature, for instance, people will be familiar with uh, the ways in which gratitude can be promoted and the ways in which it correlates with higher degrees of subjective well-being and those sorts of things. Um, for instance, you should write a gratitude journal every day, say like one or two things that you're grateful for. Um, and it will uh, increase your subjective well-being. You'll feel happier. Um, there are deeper understandings of what flourishing are, of course, than that sort of thing. And we uh, try to basically talk about those things um, quite a bit. So there's a lot that goes on um, here. But that's what I do in my day-to-day -day, is work on various topics related to that. Um, mm. Yeah. So Yeah, that's super cool, Jonathan. I love uh, what you're doing with your work and whatnot. Um, Thanks. so today we're going to look at like specifically your work on the atonement. So up in St. Andrews, you did like a PhD looking at like forgiveness and atonement and like trying to understand things and like penal substitution and like all these like really interesting like, topics. Do you want to talk a little bit about like, just first off, like what got you interested in thinking specifically about the atonement? Yeah. So, I mean, the atonement is of course a central doctrine for Christianity, but it's one of those annoying central doctrines that doesn't really have much content in the tradition that's given to you. Uh, so obviously in the, like some of the other doctrines that you might immediately think of are things like the Trinity or the incarnation. And we have conciliar pronouncements, which tell us, okay, to hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, you need to be a monotheist. So there's one God and then there need to be three persons, but they are not um, identical to each other, right? Three different persons, one God, they're all identical to God and put those things together and you get a kind of strange conglomeration of claims. Um, but we have to believe those sorts of things. Why? Because the councils uh, dictate that this is the content of Christianity. Um, I mean, obviously they're like authority questions that people will have. Someone like Dale Tuggy, who um, is a Unitarian uh, Christian would disagree with <laughs> how much we have to agree with to be a Christian and all those sorts of things. But set that aside as, as a basic rule, right? We have at least conciliar pronouncements on things like the Trinity or the Incarnation. Um, but we don't have conciliar pronouncements on any particular model of the atonement, any particular answer to the question of why it is that Christ had to die. Um, we have confessional statements 
Uh, right. So a lot of Protestants will want to sign on to some form of penal substitution, which is going to be um, a part of their confessional documents, depending on their tradition. Um, but at least when it comes to the broad ecumenical church, there are no conciliar pronouncements. Um, and so one of the reasons I was interested in this initially is because I had a church that um, I was going to, wonderful church in Oklahoma, that um, I had a small group. And they just asked me, hey, Jonathan, can you do a presentation on just for our small group on um, models of atonement and explain to us what the atonement is, how it works? And I thought, well, <laughs> that sounds like a tall order, but I'll do my best. I'll at least give you some options. So I went and read through um, a decent chunk of the philosophical literature rather than the theology literature, because I hadn't done any theology um, professionally yet at that point. Um, and basically, it uh, opened my eyes to a wide range of models. So something like two different, two dozen different models of atonement, uh, none of which I agreed with um, for one reason or another. All of them, I thought there's some things that I'm getting hung up on that I think are either false or I just don't understand how they're actually answering the question um, in a helpful way of why Christ had to die. Mm -hmm. So that sent me off into wanting to do some work in theology. Um, and so the reason I ended up doing a second doctorate and doing it in theology was largely a response to these sorts of issues that I thought, um, well, I don't feel like philosophy has fully equipped me with the sorts of resources I need alone on its own. Um, to grapple with, you know, what alternative answers there are for atonement questions. Um, so I'm going to see if I can go to theology and get some more um, data, more tools, and uh, put that together. And then out came my book as a result of uh, doing that. So that's the origin and why it is that I find it uh, important and interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that really excited me about, like, having this conversation with you, Jonathan, is like the way you think about the atonement. Um, it's super cool how like you have training in philosophy, but you also have training in like divinity and like theology. Um, and that's a super important question when we're looking at like the atonement. Um, because in your book, what you're going to try to do is try to look at like both of these things in like this lovely field of analytic theology. We're kind of bringing yeah. the two almost together. So when you're thinking about like the atonement, a lot of people will like maybe I think make a case be like, well, hey, look, look at just what like here's what the Bible says about what it means for like Jesus to be like the atonement for like our sins or something like that. But like, how does your approach into the atonement look when you're like you're looking at it from like an analytic, like theological perspective? Yeah. So the word analytic or words analytic theology um, might mean nothing <laughs> to someone <laughs> listening to this, or they might mean something very particular, right? Uh, so it's probably worth saying something about what analytic theology is in the first place. Um, so uh, theology. I'll start with this, right? Analytic theology has two parts. It has the analytic part and the theology part. Um, theology is the study of God uh, and all things in relation to God. So um, strictly speaking, the, the discipline of theology is determined by its subject rather than some sort of basic method by which you study God. Um, but of course, if you're going to study God uh, because of the nature of who God is, that's going to determine what sorts of methods might be, at least to some extent, um, more successful and having contacts with God than others. So for instance, you might think that if you're going to be a good theologian and God um, desires that you um, sort of be submissive in the right sorts of ways to who he is and respectful of his authority, maybe you should pray a lot more <laughs> so that you can have um, a little bit more access to the divine wisdom of the spirit being imparted upon you or whatever, right? So the object of theology does in fact um, seem like it would require you to study 
um, study it or him or her um, in like certain particular ways, right? Um, just in the same way that the objects of like physics would, in, or in similar ways, I should say, right? So if you're going to study uh, subatomic particles, don't um, use a, a telescope, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you should use a microscope. Um, and so the nature of the object itself does have implications for how it's best to be studied. Um, but the analytic side of analytic theology then is really about the method. Um, and analytic theology is good for some things and maybe not as good for other things. Um, I don't know the extent to which analytic theology is good for like um, supporting one's devotional life. I think it can be really good uh, for it, but that's actually a controversial question within the analytic community itself. Um, but it's certainly good if you're trying to get clear on certain concepts, like take the concept of justice and you think, okay, well, what do I mean when I say uh, that God is just? Well, that could mean that he is loving or it could mean that he's morally good or maybe God is not the sort of agent uh, to which moral norms apply. And so he's not morally good. He's just good um, without being qualified in any sort of way. All of these are different ways that you might spell out what we mean intuitively when we use the language of saying that God is just but they're not the same thing. And an analytic theologian is someone who really is good at zeroing in on those very narrow concepts and then making distinctions. Um, and it's, I'll, I'll give you a quick definition. So um, the method is typically uh, sort of, if someone's going to spell out in detail what it is, they'll appeal to Mike Ray's uh, piece from um, an edited volume called Analytic Theology, new essays in philosophical theology or philosophy of religion, something like that. Um, and this is from 2009. And he gives five prescriptions uh, of what you would expect to find in analytic writing. He says uh, analytic uh, theologians um, typically write as if uh, positions and conclusions can be adequately formulated in sentences that can be formalized and logically manipulated. So you, Zach, said that you teach math. Uh, so you can you can enjoy some of the formal logic side uh, uh, of of analytic philosophy and analytic theology itself, because the goal right, is that we're able to formulate all of our claims in sentences, which can be logically manipulated and formalized um, so that you can draw inferences in a sort of geometric uh, way. Right. So mm -hmm. if you've got Euclidean geometry, you can show how one thing follows from another. Um, that's pretty common uh, within the analytic tradition. Um, analytics, prioritize pre precision, clarity, and logical coherence. Um, they tend to avoid substantive, non-decorative use of metaphor and other tropes uh, whose semantic content outstrips their propositional content. That's a, a dense um, prescription there, but we'll just set that aside. Basically, they tend not to use metaphor all that much, especially if it doesn't seem to be necessary. Or if they do use metaphor, they explain it without the metaphor as well. And then they work as much as possible with well-understood primitive concepts um, and concepts that can be analyzed in terms of those primitive concepts. And then finally, they take conceptual analysis, like breaking down concepts mentally as a source of evidence. So those are Mike's five prescriptions he gives in that early book. Um, and they give you an idea of, generally speaking, what most analytic theologians are doing. So, mm. um, but the basic idea is you just uh, are coming at theology, you're, you're studying God, but you're doing it with a, a, a sort of um, obsessive attention to the details, um, in some sense, of what mm. you're saying. So, yeah. 
Yeah. So I guess to bring this back to your actual question, though. So you you asked so when when we're approaching like atonement and analytic theology itself from an analytic theological standpoint, what you're trying to do, right, is um, figure out what are those concepts that are bound up with our idea of what's going on in the atonement, and then let's just figure out how they hang together, where the tension places, what distinctions can be made. Um, and so like questions of divine love, what is it for God to be loving or for any agent to be loving? Um, atonement seems to be bound up with forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Um, when and uh, how ought I to forgive um, whenever it's, it's appropriate? Punishment might be in the vicinity. Suffering, of course, is uh, in there as well. So there are just so many different concepts that come into play. Um, and the analytic theologian can draw from this great, you know, up what's a short time frame, but pretty rich tradition um, in reality of answers to value and value questions, epistemological questions, metaphysical questions that help to inform um, their uh, chosen topic. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, that's helpful, Jonathan. And I kind of like to think about it, like if I have it right, that analytic theology is like trying to take like the best of analytic philosophy and like its emphasis on like precision and rigor and logical coherence and like using those tools that we get from analytic like philosophy and engaging it with like theological questions like saying like hey like here's an argument for a view that like a lot of people might behold and we're going to be very specific and like coherent about how we're going to like bring it about like do you think that's kind of right with what we're they're doing with analytic theology yeah yeah that's definitely i mean that's a good sort of pithy short way to put it um, one thing that I try to emphasize, though, when it does come up is that uh, specifically like the clarity and rigor um, prescription that Ray gives and that often gets brought out here. It, um, if you say that, well, analytic theologians are particularly um, they prioritize precision and clarity and all these things. It almost makes it sound like but other <laughs> approaches to theology don't price those things or don't do as good a job as analytics do. And that's not meant to be like the position at all. It's just that there is a particular way of like prioritizing precision and clarity in a way of expressing that clarity um, that at least with reference to people who think largely in sort of like a stereotypically analytic sense, um, it resonates well with them and helps them get at the uh, questions of theology and seem to come to some sort of understanding about it. Uh, but it's not to say that other approaches are not clear and precise, uh, but they're clear and precise relative to a background that fits with a slightly different methodological approach. Um, mm. So it's really hard to define these things very precisely. And part of the reason why is because it's really um, a sort of family resemblance relation, right? So you'll have two analytics who will basically look methodologically um, similar in some ways, but in fact, differ, differ in other ways. Uh, I think it's Sarah Coakley who in fact calls into question explicitly like the metaphor claim. And in some of the stuff I've done, I actually call into question um, the logical coherence <laughs> claim of prescription two that I gave earlier, um, mainly because uh, like we need to talk about what logical coherence even is in the first place, right? We pr might prize it, but what kind of coherence do we have in mind? Is it that you can't have true contradictions? Um, well, go read some stuff by J.C. Beale, who's written The Contradictory Christ, and you'll realize he's definitely doing analytic theology, and he prioritizes coherence. But what he means by coherence is not just simply, well, you can't have contradictory um, propositions. Um, he means something different, but he still should count as an analytic. So things like that, like we have differences over which of these prescriptions are accurate descriptions of someone as a, an analytic, but they still get, for the most part, they get things right. So, mm, Yeah, that's super helpful, Jonathan. So 
I'm wondering then, like, as we get into like our topic today, we're looking at the atonement. Yeah. Um, how are we going to look at a couple of things like the original sin, um, like what that is in the biblical witness? Like, what are they going to have to do with like forgiveness and atonement as we get into it? Yeah, yeah. Well, so original sin is one of these things that is not strictly speaking. Um, it's not it's not something you just read off of scripture, right? Um, there are certainly passages that uh, inspire doctrines of original sin, but it's not something which in all of its details is spelled out for us on the pages of scripture, right? It requires a sort of theological reading of the scriptures to come to such a doctrine. And partly like in response to that, there's a pretty big range of what uh, affirming a doctrine of original sin um, requires you to believe, right? You might think that everyone inherits guilt for Adam's sin, um, some sort of moral guilt and moral responsibility, but not everyone uh, wants to sign on to that. Um, you might think that original sin really just results in some sort of malady that transfers from Adam and Eve on through into all of humanity without transferring the guilt itself. Um, or you might think all of those things hold that you're guilty and you're also sick. Uh, you're dealing with the consequences of original sin. And then there are variations even from there. Um, but uh, even though there are like lots of different views on what original sin is, I think one thing to keep in mind when you discuss it is um, actually the nature of what humanity is supposed to be in the Genesis narrative. So I'd like to turn to like the image of God narratives themselves and ask um, if you're looking at Genesis and looking at contemporary biblical scholars like Richard Mills and what is the image of God? Some people might have like a substantivalist view where they think, Oh, the image is uh, you, the fact that you have a, a soul, a rational soul that that is what establishes or accounts for the fact that you are made in the image of God. Um, but I think that that's a misreading of the passage. Um, really, at least in the ancient near Eastern times, it looks like having an image of your King is sort of, a, it's something which, shows that you have rule over a particular area. So think about like having the image uh, when, um, gosh, I've got like the image of uh, veggie tails in my mind, the giant chocolate bunny, right? Nebuchadnezzar th puts together the statue um, that, um, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to actually worship. Um, this is a case of the image of Nebuchadnezzar here is on display and, um, but the, the image of the king is what's important, right? Humanity is similar insofar as humanity is supposed to uh, display and establish divine, uh, divine kings, king, uh, sorry, divine rule over all of creation. So essentially, then to summarize what it is, it's that if we are supposed to be made in the image of God, what that means is that um, we are sort of divinely mandated to be stewards of creation um, in place of the king. And... For the Christian, that also includes a sort of reversal that not only are we supposed to reflect God's sort of loving um, sovereignty to creation and rule, we're also supposed to reflect worship from creation perfectly back to God. Um, and this is sometimes called like the two-way mirror understanding of the, the image of God. Um, and like Tom N.T. Wright, for instance, would, would refer to it uh, in that way. Um, and I take original sin to be a failure to actually carry out that divine mandate. So the original sin for me is not necessarily something like eating an apple from the tree of knowledge and good of evil. That is um, sort of maybe a, a way of uh, 
manifesting the original sin. But fundamentally, what's going on there is there's a rebellion and there's a failure to carry out the divine mandate to actually establish perfect obedience to God and worship and then show uh, perfect loving care of creation um, in being the image uh, from the kingly or uh, monarchical side of things. So that's original sin is failure to actually live out that divine mandate. Um, and that's a mandate that is given to humanity as a group. Um, and all individual humans are uh, simply supposed to do their part to see to it that that mandate is carried out and satisfied. So original sin then in your view, like the original sin is kind of like draws back in this idea that like Adam and Eve or like however you want to fill that out, like failed to like fulfill the divine mandate of like to be like proper, like imperfect, like stewards of creation. Yeah, basically. And I mean, it, I take it to be essentially a decree so that because God has mandated that we do this, we are made in his image um, or in God's image that uh, because of that, we have a moral, we as a group have a moral responsibility to uphold that mandate. Um, mm -hmm. And then any member of humanity has a responsibility that's slightly different to see to it that the group humanity upholds the divine mandate. They have to okay. see to it or do their part um, to see to it that the group does what they're supposed to do. So okay. it's sort of like if you were a member of Starbucks, uh, so suppose you're a barista, um, you have some limited uh, responsibility to see to it that um, you don't steal from your customers as an institution. Um, even if uh, the person who's the manager has a greater chunk of that responsibility, let's say, um, or the CEO has maybe the heaviest uh, amount of responsibility or proportion of responsibility to see to it, that uh, Starbucks doesn't steal from customers. Um, but Starbucks, in fact, is the uh, the entity with the ultimate moral responsibility there. So, Okay, yeah, that's super helpful, Jonathan. I really appreciate that. So you kind of look at that. Um, now, like, when we're looking at, like, we looked at original sin, what's, like, the Christian account of, like, what do I mean, like, to be, like, what is forgiveness? Yeah, so there's, so I don't take there to be a single Christian definition of forgiveness. Um, and the reason I don't think that's the case is just because I think that the scriptures largely underdetermine uh, what forgiveness is. So you get a lot of the use of the word forgiveness or aphesis in the Greek um, in the scriptures. Um, but using a word doesn't necessarily mean you're defining it, right? You're just showing how it would be used in language. Um, so if I say, I forgive you, then I'm using the word, but I haven't told you what forgiveness is, right? Um, mm -hmm. And this, that's basically, for the most part, how it's used in scripture. Um, but I do think that we get some glimpses in the Psalms and quotations from the Psalms. And Paul, for instance, um, Romans 4, where he is quoting, um, and uh, he basically um, appeals to the idea that, um, in, in my view, that to forgive someone is to not count their sins against them, right? Um, now, that's not particularly precise as a philosophical definition, right? So you can try to be more precise as you uh, spell it out. So I'll give it in sort of like pro pro progressively technical language. Um, so first, one definition is to say that to forgive someone is to not count their sins against them. Um, a little bit more technical way of putting it is to say to not hold the wrongs they've committed against them. So moving from counting sins to not holding wrongs against someone. Um, and then here, uh, now we get into the really ratcheting up the technical language stuff. 
Uh, mm-hmm. to treat someone as if they're excusable rather than blameworthy for a given transgression. Yeah. Um, where essentially what that means is uh, you take it that whatever they've done, whatever wrong they've done is not flowing from their moral character, um, but is just a fact of uh, a sort of accidental fact of their personal history. So you treat them as if that's the case. Um, so if, um, for instance, someone accidentally bumps into me on the street and um, pushes me out in front of a car, um, suppose the car grazes me. So it doesn't hurt me that bad, but it does hurt me just a little bit. Um, I might be angry with them and I might say, hey, what, what's going on? And they might say, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. As soon as they say they didn't mean to do that, um, what that does is shields them from being blameworthy because it was unintentional. And let's assume they were not being negligent. Like they weren't walk- looking at their phone. They just, for some unavoidable reason, accidentally bumped into me. They caused this to happen. They caused me to be put in harm's way to some extent. Um, but because it didn't flow from who they were as a moral agent, it just was a sort of accident, right? They're no longer blameworthy. So this attempt to define what forgiveness is, is sort of trading on that distinction that they're excusable in some sense because it wasn't intentional, right? Um, so to treat another person as if they're excusable rather than blameworthy for a given transgression. And then here's the last one. <laughs> so if that wasn't already technical enough, uh, this builds in everything into it. So you enact a resolution. If you forgive someone, you enact a resolution to treat an offender as if they're excusable rather than blameworthy for a given normative transgression that they've committed. So that broadens things because normative means there's some sort of rule that they violated, um, but it doesn't require that it be a moral rule that they violated. It might be uh, the case that, for instance, like going too too far into the sanctuary before you've uh, purged yourself of um, impurities sufficiently, that that itself is some sort of norm normative transgression it's not clear if it gets to count as a moral transgression in the way that we use the word moral today but it still is clearly like a transgression a sin of some sort um in in some language so anyway so it's meant to account for even those broader concepts of um transgression beyond just our typical use of the word moral today um so that's the the technical precise um fuller version of what um forgiveness is but so, I mean, the general thing is, at least intuitively, once you get used to it, you can ask like, okay, how do I treat this person in such a way that I'm not going to hold the, their wrongdoing against them, right? The fact that they've hurt me, I'm not going to hold that against them moving forward. How do I treat them in that sort of way? And so there's some sort of intuitive feel to how the definition should go. Um, but if you want to get very, very precise um, at spelling it out, the ter- in, putting it in terms of excusability um, treating them as if they're excusable rather than blameworthy, uh, I think is the way to go. So, mm. I really like your definition, Jonathan. Like, there's a lot there, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, just treating people in a way is like their wrongdoing isn't held against them. Like, that's forgiveness. Like, I think that's something like super valuable to see. Like, I think because mm-hmm. you can allow for like, um, like true forgiveness is like not holding something against people. Um, what I think is super valuable, like, I think about like different settings I'm in, um, where it's like, you know, the past is the past. We move on. Like, it's just kind of like, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to hold things against you based off what happened like two years ago or like yesterday. Like it's a new day. Um, yeah, I find it super valuable. It's also helpful too, that like sometimes people wrong other people in ways where like they've brought about bad consequences in the world that cannot actually be overturned. Right. 
I mean, in, in the extreme case, like if someone is murdered, um, then you cannot bring them back to life, at least, you know, prior to <laughs> deemed resurrection time or something like that, right? Um, and there are other types of wrongdoing that aren't that extreme that are similar, right? You can't actually fix the consequences in the, mo in the moment. But nevertheless, forgiveness, I think, can still take place, even if the consequences cannot be handled um, to their full extent um, by an offender. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. and so it's, it's important because I think those are two different dimensions that often get collapsed specifically in questions of atonement and how it relates to forgiveness. Um, so, and if we have time later, we'll, we'll come to some of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's helpful, Jonathan. So I'd love to talk about like the problem of sin. So you talked a little bit about like original sin where you're kind of thinking like Adam and Eve, like are stewards of creation and they feel like kind of fall and like they fail in their job of being like perfect stewards of creation. So like what's the problem of sin that like humans today face? Like, is it related to that or something else? Yeah. So it's related to that. Um, but it's one instance of what is a broader problem of sin. So when I think about the problem of sin, at least with reference to atonement, I think of, um, any impediment to union with God. Um, and so then <laughs> that's a pretty big, uh, you know, space to work with all possible impediments to union. Um, but I think you can sort of get most of the space narrowed down in terms of uh, like the ethics of it um, by spelling it out this way. So I think that there are uh, sort of three big divisions. There's the individual guilt that you have for having done a wrong, you know, committed a wrong or committed a sin, um, including the sinful actions themselves, the negative consequences, consequences which flow from them some of which are like external consequences, like um, loss of property or whatever, and some of which are characterological, that is, have to do with how you've been changed by your wrong action, right? So if I steal, then perhaps I'm now more prone to steal in the future, or I am prone to treat people with less respect. So it's characterological, right? Insofar as it's a way in which I now regard others um, for better or worse. And then also the individual guilt has uh, the issue of once I've committed a wrong act, I will always stand in some relation to the past such that at some point in the past, I committed this wrong against another person. And I actually take uh, the strong view. Well, I, it's some people tell me it's a strong view that uh, you can't change the past. And so once you've committed a wrong, you will always have committed a wrong and there's no getting around that. Um, so some people of like certain persuasions, maybe more Lutheran persuasions might want to say that in fact, Jesus, his death makes it such that it is no longer true that in the past you've sinned. Um, I think that's clearly false. I think that's metaphysically impossible. But uh, nevertheless, I could be wrong about this. Uh, my intuitions on metaphysical possibility and necessity um, are fallible, and I acknowledge that. But nevertheless, I find it baffling uh, to claim otherwise. So that's one. That's the individual guilt um, section. There's also like human divisions um, are at least going to introduce some degree of disunion between God and humanity. Um and specifically, I have in mind like general divisions, uh, maybe due to systemic injustices or institutional problems. Um, and sometimes also we use these sorts of divisions to justify disunion between each other, right? So the so to give an example of where disunion between a couple of people actually introduces disunion with another person um, independently, I have two boys. And whenever they fight, you might think that to some extent, insofar as they're failing to get along, and the fact that I love both of them um, and wish to see them getting along introduces some sort of obstacle, some sort of increased disunion between myself and them, just in virtue of their disunion between each other. And I think that something similar can be said um, at the level of 
human agents broadly and God. So insofar as a parent-child relationship can illustrate such a thing, I think that can apply analogically um, to God and creation. Um, and then there are also issues built up with this about specific groups like Jews and Gentile relations, for instance, trying to understand like what, why did God even sort of set up this uh, distinction between people groups and what purpose was it serving in redemption history? I think that's an important question that has to be brought into this as well, because it seems like that has the potential to introduce some sort of disunion with God. Um, and then finally, the, the last category is group level guilt. So I keep talking about the importance of accounting for humanity as a group and the, the members having different relations to God, um, the members that make up humanity. Um, I think this is a real thing. So I think that the group can sin, that humanity itself can sin, and that there are members that sin as well, but their sins in this case are grounded in the responsibilities they have in virtue of being members of that group. So if they weren't a member of that group, they wouldn't have sinned in that way. But it turns out they are a member of the group, so they've sinned, and they have this additional moral responsibility um, in light of that. And then there will be consequences that result from any of these moral wrongdoings at the group level and member group level as well. Um, so that's the the full uh, problem of sin as I like to spell it out. It's individual guilt, group level systemic relations um, that introduce human divisions, and then group level guilt of humanity as a whole in relation to God. So mm. there you go. So we have like this idea of like, we're all like individually guilty um, of sin. We all fall short. Um, this leads to like group level, like conflict. And this is like, there's like fights and crime and like all these different things. And that's going to hurt like our, like humanity as a whole's relationship to God is like all this brokenness, which is like kind of like a distortion from the order of like the original creation, like the way it was kind of intended in your view. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I wonder then, like, Jonathan, like, thinking about, like, the scriptural narrative now, um, obviously, like, if you read the Bible, like, there's a lot of disorder, and there's a lot of sin, and there's a lot of conflict, um, and there's things about, like, retribution and restoration. Um, so, like, how do you, how are these things kind of looked at in the scriptural narrative? Because God doesn't, like, just, like, forgive everything right away, but, like, there's retribution. Like, so what do we think here? Yeah, well, it's funny you say that, because I, I think it's important to uh, define our terms with these things. So here's here's the analytics I have of what I want to do. So um, retributivism is a theory about the nature of corrective justice, right? That once things have gotten out of order, once like uh, the world is not fundamentally just, how do we fix it, right? How do we correct for the error that's been introduced? And so uh, it's a view on which um, if someone commits a wrong, the retributivist will say punishing them is uh, good, (laughs) It's not just good, but it's intrinsically good. That is, the good is in the punishment itself. It's not, uh, has nothing to do with anything the punishment gets us, right? So it's not that punishment reforms the person. That might be nice. That might be an additional good, but there's an intrinsic good in the punishment of the guilty itself. Um, And that's retributivism at bottom. And uh, you you can divide up retributivism in terms of a lot of different types of views. So you might think that, um, for instance, failure to punish sin um, in an equal and proportionate uh, to to an equal and proportionate degree of the sin itself um, and the degree of culpability for for the sin that the agent has. If you say that you have to do that, um, that were you to not do it, you would be committing some sort of uh, Im- immoral action, um, or you would be failing morally in some way. Um, then that's a pretty strong version of 
um, this kind of retributivism. But I'm trying to offer a weaker version, which just says, look, I think that there's this intrinsic value in punishing wrongdoers, period. Um, that is uh, what is called axiological retributivism in the literature. Um, but ignore the, the fancy title of it. That's basically what, what, what the view is. And um, I think it's false. I don't think it's characterized by scripture, actually. I don't think that God looks at human beings and punishes them because he thinks that the punishment itself is intrinsically valuable, no matter what results. I think that the scriptural data, when you look at it carefully, actually says, no, the punishment, if there is punishment and divine punishment at various points, it has a purpose. Um, that it's trying to bring about restoration or it's for the well-being of those who undergo the punishment. And if you go and look at, for instance, like in Deuteronomy, a discussion of the law itself, as you're going through and reading through the, the actual law, you also have brief like meta defenses about the purpose of the law. And it's for the well-being of the people of Israel. Right. Why do you have these punishments for the well-being of? Um, and I think that's very telling that as a pattern of the character of the God of Israel Yahweh, that he is, in fact, ordering his treatment of people to the restoration of what's gone wrong in the world. And the whole arc of the Bible is about sort of God taking what's been fallen and then redeeming it right into uh, the new creation. So I take it to be the case that restorative justice is the right account of justice in scripture. And I go into like some some detailed discussion of the actual scriptures in my book. So like, for instance, Romans, a lot of people would look at that and they see like, well, the wrath of God is directed at the, the wrongdoers in like Romans 1 and 2. Um, and I think if you read the passages that are being echoed by Paul in like Habakkuk, um, drawing on some Richard Hayes work here, that you'll see that really what's going on there is in fact restoration. Um, it's not that God wants to see people be punished because the punishment itself is intrinsically good. It's because he wants to lead them to repentance, which is explicit in Romans. Um, and then things like the lex talionis or, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, um, and whatever else uh, gets in there ear for ear, whatever, um, that like those sorts of passages in, in the old Testament, it's pretty clear that the people who are offering them see them as a uh, means of trying to pre prevent people from doing wrongs, right? Um, at the very least, first of all, it is a part of the law itself. So if the law is ordered towards well-being, it's restorative fundamentally. But at least at the legal level, these sorts of, uh, of eye for eye, tooth for tooth checks are meant to um, deter bad behavior. So deterrence-based rationale is at the base. And that's not, um, that's not retributivism, right? That's a consequentialist rationale. Um, and then I think Jesus overturns uh, at least even that uh, kind of understanding of Lex Talionis, when he says, you've heard to, heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth, a, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, wait, what did I say? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if, if when he says that, you've heard it said these things, but I say unto you, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turns to them the other. That's Is, is that correcting um, what's going on in the Old Testament law? I don't think it's actually, strictly speaking, um, inconsistent with it. Um, but it is at least, at the very least, raising the bar of what it is that God expects people, um, how, how he expects them to respond to wrongdoing. Um, and if, he, if God was a strict retributivist, then Jesus should have said, if someone wrongs you, pray for that punishment to come upon them, or something like that, right? Pray mm -hmm. for the intrinsic goodness of punishment to be brought forth. So, uh, but he doesn't say that. that. If you think he should be a retributivist, and that should surprise you. Um, and then finally, we do get passages in like Isaiah or Job, um, some of which I actually wanted to read at least like 
part of the Isaiah passage. Yeah. Um, so like Isaiah 3, 10 through 11, it says, Tell the innocent how fortunate they are, for they shall eat the fruit of their labors. Woe to the guilty how unfortunate they are, for what their hands have done shall be done to them. What that sounds like when you read it here is that uh, the righteous get benefits and the evildoers get punished. Um, of course, we know as a descriptive thesis, this is wrong, <laughs> right? You know, um, people who do who are, who are righteous in many ways, in fact, do get punished or maybe not punished, but they get visited uh, upon them uh, suffering, really. Um, but what's in, important with this kind of a passage is that nowhere in that passage does it say, and God is hereby punishing or rewarding the people who do good or wrong. It's basically just describing a sort of karmic order that the good, uh, that if you're good, then good will come to you. And if you're bad, then bad will come to you as well. Um, but it's important that in these passages of scripture where the karmic order is sort of indicated, it's not in fact used as a principle of justice, that this is the way things ought to be. It's just a description that's being given. And then we have reason to think that it's a false description independently because it's contested in other parts of scripture, such as like when Jesus responds to his disciples who say, um, hey, Lord, so who is it that sinned that this man in this family, was it him or his parents who sinned that caused him to be lame? Um, and Jesus says, well, hey, it had nothing to do with that. Uh, why would you uh, make such a bad assumption? Um, right. And then he goes on to explain that it's so that uh, so that God's righteousness can be revealed through this man, which is its own kind of glorif glorification of um, a person that's unexpected. Right. Taking the oppressed and then uh, lifting them up in a new in, in, in an important sense. So I think the overall arc of Scripture and even with the problem passages, if you read it very carefully and very clearly, it just is not talking about retributivism, at least not in terms of punishment. Um, if, if anything, it ends up being something that sounds like karmic order. And that's a thesis about how the world is, not a thesis about how the world ought to be. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of, like, really helpful things that you've brought up here, Jonathan. Um, so you talked about the idea that, like, we're not just saying, like, like punishment is just good. Like, it's just good to punish someone. But, like, the biblical vision of punishment is something that's almost, like, purposeful, like, restorative, yeah. something along these lines that has a purpose. Um, can you talk about, like, just to recap because i'm a little confused about the sure. turn the other cheek thing what do you mean because some people might say well isn't that just saying like well there is no punishment like just kind of like get over it like there's no purpose and like there's no punishment there it's just this turn the cheek like how does that fit into your idea yeah so turn the other cheek so the passage so when we're talking about jesus there what i think jesus is telling telling us there is that um we are not to respond in kind to uh people mm. who are uh wronging us right um okay. but that itself is uh, it gets gets difficult to know exactly how to adjudicate these things. Some people take these passages to imply pacifism, right? Richard Hayes is one of those people who's a pacifist and largely inspired by, by these sorts of passages. Um, and so that Christ is in fact saying, no, uh, you should not respond in kind. In fact, you shouldn't respond uh, at all, right? You need to turn the other cheek and allow them to continue to do those things. I think that can't be the final word on this. Um, for reasons of like, obviously you do not want to uh, picture Christ as saying that, well, once abuse has taken place, uh, let's allow that abuse to be perpetuated. Right. So you don't want to say those sorts of things. And I think that's inconsistent with other parts of scripture. Um, but nevertheless, what I do think is going on is to say that God is going to take care of the vengeance itself, either himself directly, or, and this is of course, like echoing Romans, like the, the end of Romans, Romans uh, 12, 13, somewhere in there. Um, 
that God's taking care of these things, but also that he might be doing it through particular agents, right? Um, through proper institutional channels or various things along those lines. Um, so basically, I mean, restorative justice is itself, uh, if you're going to punish someone, the justification needs to be that you're aiming to, um, in some sense, reform or help them to learn. So to take it at just a basic context of like a parent-child relationship, the reason you punish your kids is not because you think it's intrinsically good that they be punished. You punish them. Um, let's assume your kids are old enough so that moral responsibility clearly applies to some of their actions. You punish them because you want them, them to be better people. You want to help to train them, um, even if they're morally responsible for actions after a certain age. Um, you still want to train them up so that they'll be able to be good, properly functioning, societal, uh, socially acclimated adults uh, someday, right? Um, and similarly, I think that the punishment, if there's punishment in scripture, that it's the sort of thing that it's implemented by proper authorities, either God or institution, institutions that are properly uh, carrying out the, the authority that they have, um, that then should be issuing those punishments in accordance with restorative rationales. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's a very helpful, Jonathan. So thank you for that. Um, so I'd love to just talk a little bit about like penal substitution now. Um, that's mm -hmm. obviously like a very popular like kind of view within evangelical theology. So do you want to talk a little bit about like what maybe like the average person thinks when they think about like what penal substitution is and like what is like a non-retributive model of penal substitution look like where it's not just about like getting the punishment? Um, so yeah, yeah. What's your take here, Jonathan. Yeah, so penal substitution um, is the view that Jesus um, suffered the penalty which would have been our punishment for sin if applied to us, right? That's the broad view. Um, but what that thesis doesn't say yet is what the justification for the punishment is supposed to be, right? That view by itself is not retributive if you just say, say that. Um, what you need to go on to say after you say that, well, Jesus bore the punishment, which was uh, our sin, uh, or which was due for our sin, or bore the penalty, which would have been punishment if applied to us, Um when you say something like that, you also need to add, and the reason that God punished humanity was because, well, if you're a retributivist, you say because it was intrinsically good. Um, it was something which actually brought order or balance to uh, to the universe in some sense, right? That mm -hmm. because there was this bad introduced by your wrongdoing, there was an intrinsic good that God visited upon you or upon Christ in this case, such that it restored that balance to some extent. So it's in a, it really is, in a sense, just a balancing of scales um view um yeah to put it it's most simple right but you you don't have to think that the reason jesus was punished if you do think jesus was punished in the first place and that's not something everybody is on board with um but if you do think he was punished you don't have to think um that it's because of retribute for retributive reasons right you can think that it's for some sort of restorative reason um that perhaps christ undergoing our the the suffering which would have been our punishment is something which um, in fact, uh, inspires us to live a life of, uh, better virtue. And it's, uh, the sort of, um, event that, which, which would have, uh, been necessary for us to live as good a life as we could. So it sort of is, um, essentially bound up with our moral reform such that we could be sanctified. Um, I think this is too weak of a view. This is really, to me, in a lot of ways, very similar to an exemplarist moral, moral exemplarist view. Um, mm -hmm. but I do think that one thing that's helpful here 
is if you take the time to spell out how Jesus is substituting for us. So moral exemplarism doesn't try to explain that Jesus is substituting for us um, in some sense. They say that Jesus inspires us and that's it. Um, but on this view, Jesus is substituting uh, as the bearer of punishment for um, the rest of the members of humanity in a particular sense. So you can accommodate some of the scriptural data about substitutionary atonement in, in ways that moral exemplarism on the basic level, at least, doesn't seem to be able to do. Um, and uh, I think that clearly you can make sense of Christ being a representative one being punished, punished because he himself is uh, the great high priest representative of humanity. Um, and then, um, let's see, representation, substitution, and then we are able to say that we participate um, in Christ's death and punishment to some extent on this kind of a view, merely in virtue of the fact that we belong to the same group and we um, sort of allow our representative to uh, bear that punishment on our behalf. So if you buy into, you opt into the new covenant community, that's your saying uh, that, yes, I accept that Jesus is my representative and he is the perfect human who will suffer the punishment on my behalf. Um, and on behalf of the entire group of humanity. So something like that, and you could spell it out um, in much more detail. I've done, uh, I've actually done a previous podcast somewhere else um, where I go and focus just on spelling out a restorative penal uh, substitution view. Um, and it's, it involves a lot of work and details to try and explain like, how, you know, where is substitution actually taking place here? How is this supposed to be better than uh, another, um, an alternative penal substitution view? But ultimately it's not my view, right? So I'm, even though I, I tr it's it's sort of like a, a second uh, a, a secondary view uh, that mm -hmm. I'd be to back into if I thought that my own understanding of atonement was not going to to be better at, at the end of the day. Um, yeah, I don't actually think that it has to be false either. I think that m the view I prefer to talk about is consistent with this, um, but it also gets a little bit more into uh, why was Christ's death um, death and sacrifice necessary. Um, in a way that this view doesn't obviously seem to get uh, for me. So if I'm just trying to like totally like understand from like a mile high, this like non-retributive uh, penal substitution view, what it's trying to say is like when we're thinking about like why did Jesus die? It's not just because like punishment's good. Like someone had to get punished for all the sin and it was Jesus. And like that's yeah. why he was punished. So it's not that. Um, but it is saying something like Jesus still did die on my behalf. Like he was the representative for me, but he wasn't the representative just because like punishment is good and we needed some sort of like punishment for sin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it might help for me just to give you a little bit from, from my examples in the book. So let me sure. just start. I'll give one and then give an analogy over to Jesus. So imagine the following kind of scenario. So suppose that you're at St. Andrews, the University of St. Andrews, where I was when I was writing this, and the theology faculty have received um, really, really uncharacteristically poor teaching evaluations from their students on a particular year. I guess COVID really, really messed things up, let's say. This didn't happen, as it turns out. Go look at the student evaluations. Um, uh, they're available, and apparently St. Andrews did very well during COVID. But suppose it didn't. Um, and then assuming that the evaluations accurately reflect the teaching performance of the individual faculty members, it seems like in that case, they have failed as a group, the theology faculty, to ensure that all the theology students received adequate academic instruction, right? So the whole group fails. Now, the higher-ups have decided to take punitive measures by redirecting travel funding from all the theology faculty to the psychology faculty. Um, <laughs> 
darn. Uh, so a staff <laughs> meeting is held uh, in terror that the psychology people would get all of the, the theology money. And in that meeting, the director of teaching in theology proposes that she, she bear the responsibility on behalf of the group for the poor teaching performance by giving up all of her special grant f- travel funding. So suppose she has her own like pocket of funding that she has from a grant. She proposes that she give all of that up. And remarkably, um, the amount of her travel funds matches exactly the fund of all faculty members and the theology faculty combined. So let's just make all these assumptions. That's fine. It's possible. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how it would happen, even though it's uh, remarkable and nice. Um, very convenient. She is, remember, she's the, the director of teaching in theology. And as the director, it seems that she must have failed to do her part to ensure that the other faculty members manifested the sort of pedagogical brilliance that they ought to have. Mm-hmm. Um, so then suppose a vote is held and the entire department gracious, graciously accepts her proposal. Then in that case, what's happened is your director of teaching has taken the punishment, which was given to the group equally across and borne the entire punishment herself. So she gives up all of her funding, the equivalent amount, and redistributes it to the rest of the faculty so that they do not have to bear the same penalty, right? So it seems like you get something like substitution of the penalty bearer in this case. She's a reasonable representative um, to do this sort of thing because she's the director of teaching. Um, It seems like she really does bear the, the primary responsibility for it, even if she didn't do anything herself. Um, that should have uh, resulted in this. I mean, think about it. You can try to get other teachers to do everything you can, but they're still human agents. And it's really hard to get other humans to do things you want um, in certain cases and in in context, right? Um, But so it seems like she's an appropriate representative substitute. And it seems like the entire faculty have joined, they've gotten on board and they're participating in her bearing of the punishment and they're sort of behind it, giving it a thumbs up that this in fact represents what we as a group have decided we would like to do um, in response to the, to the wrongdoing. So take that case and now let's transfer it over to Christian theology a little bit. So suppose all humans have sinned. That's a good supposition on most uh, Christian theology yeah. um, such that they are individually guilty of sins. Suppose further that they are all members of a unified community known as humanity, this big group level object. Um, In virtue of their sins, individually and corporately, death follows as a sort of natural corruption and consequence. Why black box? I don't know. That's just clearly seems to be biblical at the very least. Um, Even though God could intervene to prevent the members of humanity from undergoing death, something which would also result in the death of the whole group humanity once its members had all died, right? If all your members die, the group dies too. Um, Instead, God appropriates these natural consequences of sin as a punishment. Why does he do this? Well, he does it because death imposes a limit upon existence. So I'm giving you a sort of rationale that will now be restorative for it. That is a limit to existence that increases the likelihood that members of humanity will pursue their own flourishing. After this initial teaching pedagogical punishment has been understood for some time, however, God the Son takes on flesh as the divine human person, Jesus. As fully human, Jesus is a member of humanity, and in virtue of his perfect life, he accrues a rightful representative status within humanity. That is, he embodies a version of humanity, the group, as God intended it to be from the start. As a representative, God opts to punish Jesus in place of all the other members of humanity, sort of like the director of teaching is punished in place of all the other 
uh, faculty members, because God knows that visiting the punishment upon one representative member, Jesus, will result in greater flourishing on the whole than the other punishment would have. Thus, Christ serves as a substitute bearer of our punishment as our representative. But importantly, when Christ is punished, humanity, the group, is punished as well, even if its members are not individually punished. It's it's through the punishment of Jesus that humanity, the group, is punished, right? And thus, for those who choose to accept Christ's status as their representative, they participate in Christ's punishment, since they thereby exclaim that through Christ and with Christ, they'll become a new humanity, no longer involved in the ways of sin, but committed to a life of cruciform living, right? So that's the model that I think um, is the best option for somebody who wants to adopt penal substitution that's restorative in what's going on, that... In fact, the death of Christ, when he comes in, at the time he comes in, as a substitution for the prior punishment that was on the books, so to speak, um, results in a greater degree of flourishing than uh, would have been had with just the old punishment or having Christ be punished from the beginning. Um, mm. Another issue, like you need to explain why it is that the substitution takes place to begin with instead of starting with the the ultimate punishment. Um, and that gets complicated if you, if you don't... Um, pay attention to those things so okay yeah that's super helpful jonathan so i appreciate that um what i'd love to do like we have about 30 minutes left now you talked about how like the non-retributive metal like that's something that like model is something that you like but it's nothing that you're like super committed to um i'd love to kind of like dive into like what you think a good explanation is and kind of like everything that goes on there um so the first things first like jonathan like what would be a good explanation of the atonement like what would it look like to have a good explanation of the atonement. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are competing ways or dimensions of evaluation, uh, ways to evaluate models, generally speaking. Um, so you can pull from like the philosophy of science literature on these sorts of things. Um, but uh, basically, I mean, actually Tom Wright uh, in some, some of his big uh, volume books um, uh, is I think actually very good on the pointing to these sorts of things. But uh so a model is going to be better um, or an explanation will be better. All things being equal insofar as it's simple, right? Um, so if, uh, for instance, I see cookies are missing from the cookie jar, um, I might think that initially I'll have one, one uh, possible explanation. Caspian stole the cookies. That's my oldest son. My youngest mm -hmm. son's name is Theo. So I might think independently that Theo stole the cookies. And those are two competing explanations. And they're equally simple because each of them only requires positing one um, particular person. Um, but then I have a third explanation that's possible here, namely that they both sort of coordinated in the attempt of stealing cookies, right? Um, that once one is going to do it, the other person, the other uh, son is definitely bound to be right behind. Um, you might think that, right? And so those are three different explanations. If we're just talking about simplicity as a dimension of evaluating them, clearly Theo stole the cookies alone or Caspian stole the cookies alone. Those are the best ex explanations. And the one that posits both of them coordinating uh, to do it is not going to work. But in terms of explanatory power, you might think, well, it doesn't explain things very well because there's some other information I might know. Like I might know that there's never a moment at which Caspian and Theo are separated. They do everything together. And if I know that, then I know that most likely, at least if Caspian or Theo saw the other one had cookies in their hand, then both boys would have inevitably um, participated in the stealing of cookies. 
That's just a guarantee mm-hmm. given their, their natures and what I know about them psychologically. Um, so that explanation, which scored poorly in, sim- in simplicity compared to the two alternatives, is now all of a sudden a better explanation uh, because explanatory power comes into play. Um, and these two things, you have to have a sort of balance with them when you're trying to come up with an explanation of, of events. And similar to what just happened there in history, simplicity is definitely um, an indicator of, uh, prob- of probability, like good explanation. But when you start to look at historical events, the degree to which simplicity has to be favored over um, explanatory power more broadly uh, diminishes a bit. And this is one of those things that N.T. Wright, I think, does a very good job of, of uh, bringing to the fore. Because in a lot of scientific theorizing, oftentimes simplicity can be a major arbiter of which two theories is better um, in a way that it might not be in terms of like historical explanation. Um, so you have these ways of trying to compare um, compare explanations. And ultimately, I think in the case of atonement, you might have an explanation like a sort of basic understanding of penal substitution that is fairly simple, but it fails when it when you look at the details on um, fit with scripture, where fit with scripture is something like explanatory power when applied to these sorts of cases. Um, and you have to have a balance of these virtues as well, right? And so you have to figure these sorts of things out. Um, and when you turn to something like uh, my view on the atonement, is it okay if we go ahead and dive into that? Um, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Ask if you have questions or clarifications. But when it comes to my view on the atonement, I think that you have to be able to accommodate things like Yom Kippur, Passover, and the scapegoat um, side of things that's involved with Yom Kippur. Um, if you're going to do justice to at least, uh, well, yeah, the scriptures generally, the book of Hebrews in particular uh, serves as a big inspiration for what I want to say as the best model of atonement. Uh, but you have to accommodate those things. And I don't think that penal substitution by itself is able to deal with specifically the Yom Kippur stuff that's going on. Um, and I mean, there are different ways to talk about like why it is, that I think that it doesn't do this. Um, but give me one second. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> Sorry. Mouth's getting dry. So, <laughs> I mean, you've been talking a lot, so I don't blame you. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so my, my view on these sorts of things basically just goes as follows. I think that Christ's um, Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, all of those things are part of his work, um, right? The sacrifice that he makes. Um, and you can't reduce them to just a single ritual. I think that you need to have, um, at least in my view, at least a tripartite um, understanding of what's going on. Tripartite meaning there are three parts. So I break them down into... Yom Kippur, Passover, and then um, the scapegoat. Um, and the reason I think this is important is, uh, well, w- one way to motivate is just to say, look at John one twenty nine. This is an interesting case where um, that passage reads uh, that basically Jesus is supposed to be the Lamb of God, right? So this is coming out of the voice, uh, the mouth of uh, John the Baptist. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's a really interesting passage, partly because, um, like, when do you think about an animal which takes away sin? Usually you think about Yom Kippur, right? You think about um, the, not the lamb, importantly, right? It's the goat which takes away sin and bears it out of the camp. Um, but when you talk about, like, the sin offerings or sin sacrifices, um, 
they're offered in Levitical uh, tradition, um, the lamb is not exactly a prominent symbol of that. What the lamb is a prominent symbol of, though, is Passover. Okay, um, but the Passover event, which takes place, is not traditionally about sin primarily, right? So when you have the Exodus Passover, um, the lamb is slaughtered and then the blood is put on the door, basically to de- to demonstrate um, membership. Uh, as God's covenant people, right? As Yahweh's covenant people to basically protect uh, the people of Israel from the angel of death, which is, you know, sweeping through um, Egypt at the time. But nowhere is sin um, explicitly being spoken of there. Um, And so that's really interesting that if we're talking about Christ being a Passover lamb, um, well, we fundamentally, we think Christ is dealing with sin. So we can't just stop and say that Christ is, is a Passover. We need to say about something about how it is that the Passover connects with dealing with sin itself. And Yom Kippur writes, of course, do deal with sin. Um, but not only do they deal with sin, they also uh, show up in the book of Hebrews, um, where God uh, or what, where Jesus is depicted as a high priest of the Melchizedekian priesthood, uh, that ascends through the heavenly temple into the Holy of Holies and then offers himself, his life, his blood. Um, take your pick. All those things are used explicitly in Hebrews um, as an offering on the heavenly altar in virtue of which our sins are then covered, expiated, right? Um, but that's just, it's interesting because we don't hear any of the distinctions between Passover or Yom Kippur anywhere in the penal uh, uh sorry, um, penal substitution kinds of uh, theories, usually what happens is they get sort of melded together without keeping them like clearly addressing the various problems of sin um, that they're meant to address. So let me say something about how it is that I see um, or my, my theory of atonement, basically. So on the one hand, I have my Yom Kippur side of things. So... Remember, I was talking about the uh, double mirror view about the image of God in humanity, that we fundamentally have a mandate to worship God perfectly, reflect creation's worship back up to God, and then reflect a loving, sovereign um, stewardship back to creation itself. Um, So it turns out, on my view, that that's an accurate description of our original sin, that we actually have morally failed as a group humanity here. And then... Um, each individual member of humanity, insofar as they fail to see to it that humanity does accurate or like perfectly reflect that worship to God and reflect um, stewardship down to creation, that insofar as you fail to help humanity do that, you also are guilty of failing at your responsibilities, morally speaking. Um, and so that's the moral issue. But I actually think that one way to spell out what's going on here is that there's a consequence of a failure to carry out that that divine mandate. And the consequence is a loss of status of sorts for humanity as a group and any member of humanity. You might call this a decrease in one's holiness, Um, but uh, that makes it a sort of consequence of a moral failure. But the consequences themselves are, um, even though they result from a moral failure, they are normative issues rather than just moral issues the way that i like to talk about so yom kippur when christ ascends into the heavenly temple to then offer his life um on the heavenly altar um what he's doing is actually giving us um he's fulfilling that divine mandate for us such that he deals with the issue of unholiness 
that's consequent on our moral failure prior to that. So what Christ does when he lives his life fully is he accurately and perfectly reflects God's loving um, sovereignty to all creation as a member of humanity. And he lives obediently in such a way that he reflects perfect worship and in fact demonstrates what perfect worship ought to be um, back up to God. So he, as a single member, is able to reflect uh, or able to satisfy and carry out that divine mandate. And in virtue of that, as a member of humanity, humanity, the group comes to um, actually satisfy that divine mandate. So we're called to perfectly reflect these things to creation and to God. Jesus does it um, single-handedly, so so it turns out. Um, mm. So that deals with the issue of holiness. So in virtue of that, I take it that we are that our status is restored. Um, <clears throat> but what I don't think changes yet is the fact that we sinned because we didn't do our part, right? Jesus had to do it all on his own. And we as individual members of humanity didn't do our part to see to it that the group would actually achieve um, or satisfy the divine mandate. And so in virtue of that, there's something moral in the past that needs to be forgiven. And God, strictly speaking, if God didn't love it, love us, I, I don't think he would actually have to forgive us, right? He's not bound to forgive us. But because God loves us, um, in fact, he chooses to treat us or not hold that sin against us. So we have the holiness that's been restored thanks to Jesus, um, at least to a sufficient degree that it's appropriate for us and good for us to be in, divine, in the divine presence. But God still has um, the right to choose not to be with us. But he loves us, and so, of course, he doesn't exercise that right, nor would he ever have done so. And that, I take it, the point of uh, forgiveness is what goes on with the scapegoat. So I take this point of divine forgiveness to be analogous to the scapegoat ritual of Yom Kippur. So if you'll remember, if you go back to reading Leviticus, um, there is, I mean, there are multiple sacrifices here that are going on, but the, the goat that is sent into the wilderness is the scapegoat, which bears the sins of the people of Israel out of the camp. And then there's also another goat, which is sacrificed on the altar. And that's the expiating goat that covers uh, the camp, right? And, I take it that Jesus's sacrifice in the heavenly temple is the expiatory part of it. And then the scapegoat is not actually doing anything additional uh, with the sin. What's actually going on there is that it's illustrating the sort of divine love and faithfulness of God to not hold the sins against the community. Um, and you find various interpretations of Le Leviticus here and what's going on here. Some people will say that both of them are in fact a single ritual um, but the interesting thing is the book of Hebrews walks through and shows you how Christ is the Yom Kippur sacrifice, but has nothing to say about the scapegoat. In fact, if you go into the New Testament, it's really hard to find references to the scapegoat um, where Jesus is, in fact, playing the role um, that he's supposed to. Like go when you have uh, Jesus Barabbas, right? So the son of the father, um, Barabbas, right? It means son of the father. So when you have him, and he and Jesus are held up side by side. This is clearly invoking the image of Yom Kippur in the gospel. Mm. But the scapegoat in that case is not Jesus of Nazareth. It's Jesus Barabbas, who is sent free, sent free um, before Jesus, is, Jesus of Nazareth is then crucified, right? Um, and so it's just interesting where you do find the scapegoat. It looks like Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, does not ever line up as the one who is a scapegoat. And then when you have Yom Kippur explicitly drawn into the picture in Hebrews, there is no mention of the scapegoat whatsoever. Um, and so that's the reason that I take the scapegoat as largely sort of illustrative um, of divine forgiveness 
is it seems like it's adding on more of the faithfulness of God to the community of Israel, in my view, or at least I think that's the best option. Um, and is faithful to the New Testament and the New Testament's reception of that Levitical bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. So thank you for that, um, Jonathan. So if we're looking at like your view and like the atonement and like what that means, like for Jesus to be atoning sacrifice, you're going back to that question of like original sin. Like what is original yeah. sin? And it's like it looks like it's like this failure to like fulfill like the divine mandate. Um and we're looking at like you know, Jesus and who he is and like how he's an atoning sacrifice. It's like Jesus fulfilled the atoning, like fulfilled that vision. He's the first person to like fulfill that vision of like what it would be to like um, walk out what God asked of Adam and Eve. He's the first fruits, right? To use biblical language fruits. of that. Mm, yeah. That's super cool. So, so I wonder then, Jonathan, like how is this going to apply to us then? Like we have this vision of Jesus. How are we forgiven then? And like, what does like this Jesus's death like mean for us? Like how do we get from there to like that? Yeah. Well, so I take it that um, one, so holiness as a concept in scripture is a bit tricky to really know what to do with in a lot of ways. Um some people will think of holiness as something which is uh, just um, being set apart, right? So you'll hear this oftentimes when people talk about holiness. If you just define something as holy, if and only if it's set apart from other things, then it actually turns out just from that definition alone that if X is holy, then there's something that X is set apart from, namely Y. So if X is holy, then Y itself is set apart from X. It follows that Y is holy as well, right? You've got this sort of biconditional relationship that if you justify it in terms of being set apart then you end up making anything which is set apart holy as well as the thing from which it's set apart um that's a common use of the word holiness but i don't think that reflects actually what's fundamental to holiness in scripture and what's fundamental to holiness in scripture is uh something along the lines of status so i follow mark murphy who wrote a book on holiness um, in 2021, I follow him largely on the understanding and unpacking of it, that a, a perfectly holy being is a being who is great in all possible respects, has status um, to the maximal extent in all possible, in all possible respects. Um, and so it turns out, though, um, that uh, once the holiness issue of humanity is dealt with um, by Jesus's sacrifice in my Yom Kippur model here, um, that we in fact become, we our status is raised such that it is no longer bad for us to be in contact with a perfectly holy being um, or to be more intimate with a perfectly holy being. But prior to that event of Christ um, fulfilling the mandate that we owed, I take it that it was actually bad for us as a group to be in perfect union with God. Not because God would harm us or like try to do something bad for us, but because the very fact of our our holiness status um, was something which made it bad for us. Um, and I try to spell this out in more detail in the book. Um, but basically what I think happens is Jesus' sacrifice makes it such that we it is good for us to be um, treat, be more unified with God. And in virtue of that, God forgives us. Um, and treats us as if we're excusable for the wrong that we've done. Um, and in doing that, comes into greater union with us, but in a way which doesn't threaten our existence. Um, so Christ's atonement makes it possible for God to love us, or sorry, makes not not possible to love us, sorry, makes it possible for God to forgive us in a loving fashion. 
And that's significant because I think that forgiveness is not always loving. Um, I think it can be unloving to forgive someone, namely that in cases where treating that person as if they were morally uh, excusable rather than blameworthy would result in some sort of perpetuation of bad behavior or enabling um, in that sense. Um, and I think that something akin to that is taking place in the divine human relations case as well. Mm. Okay, yeah, this has been really helpful, Jonathan. Maybe, like, to start to wrap things up, how would you, like, explain, like, your model of, like, the atonement to, like, say, like, a six-year-old? It's like, what do I need to do to be saved? Like, what does Jesus mean to me? Um, like, like, how would you explain it? Yeah, to a six-year-old, I mean, I do think that uh, explanations have to be uh, sort of ratcheted to fit with uh, the level of experience for different people. So mm -hmm. if someone, if I go to, like, a car mechanic and ask them to explain why is my car not working, I hope they don't expect me to have mechanic level um, understanding <laughs> of the inner workings of a car. Yeah. So, and similarly with theology, I mean, I think it's, a, it's an area of expertise that you can develop. And so a six-year-old is not ready to hear about the ins and outs of holiness and um, like sacrificial goats and such. But what I do think is important is to say at the very least, Christ died for your sins and that Christ did it because he loves you and because God loves you fundamentally. And all of this is stuff that your six-year-old can understand. And as they sort of grow with their own capacities um, to discuss these things, as it gets more complicated, I mean, yeah, you just explain it more deeply and at deeper levels. You sort of peel away the onion um, and notice that uh, there are layers and layers of meaning that are behind this that can be unpacked further. So the simple answer is uh, Jesus died for our sins because Jesus loves you and wants to know you and be in union with you. He wants to be intimately involved in your life at every step and wants you to know that love for him. So a six-year-old can understand that more or less. Yeah. So it's awesome. Jonathan. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Do you have any like last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap up here? Yeah. I mean, thanks. Thanks a lot, Zach, again, for having me on. This has been fun. Um, I mean, last thoughts, uh, certainly there's a lot of interesting, good work on atonement that's going out. I haven't been working a whole lot on that. Um, mostly I've been focusing more on the forgiveness things because of the work I've been doing at Harvard. Um, but let me just say, like, if you want to buy the book, I'd love it for people to buy the book. It's on mm -hmm. Amazon and goes into details, but it's also super expensive. So wait, it'll eventually come out on uh, paperback. So if you don't like reading Kindle, uh, which is the affordable option right now, um, then it should come out on paperback eventually. Um, and then I've got some other stuff coming out. I have a book uh, called Paradox and Contradiction in Theology. Um, that's an edited volume. They'll come out um, sometime, hopefully this year. That's sort of up in the publisher's hands. Uh, but things like this, um, I mean, it, it's nice to be able to get your views out there. And I'm always happy to get in contact with people. Look me up, just you know, Google Jonathan Rutledge, Harvard um, University, and then you'll be able to find me pretty easily. So I'd love to hear from anybody if you have questions or just want to chat. Yeah, awesome. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate you and your work. I think you're doing awesome stuff. I uh, appreciate your clarity and like your way of just like diving deep into these topics. Um, and yeah, this was huge. So thank you so much for coming on. I'll leave a link down below to your website so people can follow you, connect with you, all that stuff. And yeah, this is that. That's it here in Apologetics. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming on. If you're new here, I encourage you to like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Really appreciate your support. And if you value what we do, please consider going and becoming a patron at patreon.com slash here in Apologetics. Your support would be huge. Very much appreciated. So Jonathan, thank you so much one last time for coming on. Thanks so much, Zach. 
Have a good, good one, everyone. God bless, and we shall catch you next time.